Universal basic income, the idea has gained a lot of widespread attention, but it's almost solely dominated by sort of Silicon Valley idea of what a basic income should look like. Uh, and the left has to have a voice in that debate, otherwise it will be dominated by Silicon Valley. Our argument there was not necessarily that a basic income was the, the solution to all of our problems or is the one key thing that the left should focus on. It was instead an idea that this is going to be a live issue. We need to have some sort of voice in the debate. everyone. In this episode of the Strzelka Institute podcast, we keep talking to the faculty of the Terraforming, Strzelka's postgraduate research program directed by Benjamin Bratton. In the next half hour, you're up for an interview by an art critic, Valentin Diakonov, with Nick Cernik, a lecturer in digital economy at King's College London and co-author of a book Inventing the Future, recently translated into Russian by Strzelka Press. They sit down to discuss the concept of basic income and the role of automation in redistribution of the value. Obviously, the book uh, kind of sprang out at a certain historical moment. And correct me if I'm wrong, this historical moment was the failure of this uh, grassroots democracy movements like Occupy. Is that true? Yeah, very much so. Um, sort of the initial ideas for the book were um, sort of came out of meetings between myself, Alex Williams and uh, Mark Fisher um, around 2010, 2011. Uh, and in the UK, at least where we were all based, there were student protest movements. There was the Occupy um, Wall Street movements, and they were all just sort of utterly destroyed by the state. Um, and these sort of efforts at trying to change things, despite the fact that you had this 2008 crisis and everybody knew that the economic system was fundamentally flawed, there were still no changes made. And so the question for us was, you know, why did these movements fail? Um, and that was sort of the initial spur for the book. At the moment when it came out, after the manifesto, two years after the manifesto, I believe, what was the reception among uh, the people who were part of those movements? Did you, were you kind of chastised by them for being too universalist? People didn't like the argument, particularly around folk politics. And I can sort of understand that. I think in retrospect, I think we were a bit too negative on those movements. Uh, we tried to be balanced within the book, less so in the manifesto. Um, but in the book, we tried to take a sort of balanced approach about, you know, these things did have positive aspects, but they also failed. And we were trying to reckon with that failure. But a lot of people involved in those movements didn't quite take to our critiques. I think... In retrospect, though, that our critiques have actually been sort of adopted into a lot of the left, particularly within the European and North American left. Um, so you've seen this turn towards political parties across the UK. You've got the rise of Corbyn. Uh, in the US, you've got the rise of Bernie Sanders. Uh, and of course, you've got Podemos and all sorts of other institutional instantiations of these grassroots movements. So I think in a way, our core arguments that the grass mo grassroots movements were insufficient in their own rights has actually been taken into account. And it has actually changed the nature of the left over the past five years or so. Right now, how do you think the moment uh, changed for the book and for the basic ideas of uh, the outline of the basic income that was uh, put out in 2015? Yeah, so I think our critique wouldn't apply today. I think if, you know, another major global recession happens, People won't respond simply by trying to recreate Occupy Wall Street. They'll be trying to recreate alternative ways to, to uh, effectuate change. Um, so I think our critique doesn't hold anymore. It was sort of one historical moment where that was, that was true. 
Um, are sort of positive ideas. I would say universal basic income, the idea has gained a lot of widespread attention, but it's almost solely dominated by a sort of Silicon Valley idea of what a basic income should look like. Uh, and in part, our book was an attempt to argue for, it was to say that these debates about what a basic income should look like are coming, are emerging, uh, and the left has to have a voice in that debate, otherwise it will be dominated by Silicon Valley. So our argument there was not necessarily that a basic income was the you know, the, the solution to all of our problems or is the one key thing that the left should focus on. It was instead an idea that this is going to be a live issue. We need to have some sort of voice in the debate. Um, and it's also it's a demand which forces people to rethink what work is all about. So when I talk to people who are not involved in politics in any significant way, um, my parents, for instance, um, the basic income is something that suddenly opens up a whole series of questions that we would not otherwise have. So, you know, why am I receiving a wage? Why should I be working? You know, how long should I be working for? So for me, at least, the basic income is not necessarily something that's going to be achieved in five, 10, even 15 years, but it is something which opens up a space of debate. Since 2015, there were several experiments with the basic income, uh, both temporal or as policies, presented as policies, especially if you remember the uh, five-star movement, uh, the citizenship mm. income. What is your favorite experiment of those and why? <laughs> Obviously, it's not the five-star, I, I believe. But, no, no, it's not the five-star. But five star. maybe a Finnish one or, or the Swiss one is more to your liking, or maybe you have... Another example of a yeah. good basic income experiment. Yeah, the, the the referendum on the Swiss one, I think, was interesting. And it would have been um, a quite interesting basic income experiment if it had been passed. The Finland one, I think, is interesting in its own right as well. Uh, but my favorite has to go back to sort of like the classics in the 1970s. So there's mm -hmm. a, a Canadian experiment um, with the basic income. And they found a whole bunch of really sort of indirect consequences from it. Um, so there was less crime, for instance, because parents were able to stay home and look after children. Um, children weren't, you know, necessarily getting into trouble as a result. And all sorts of these knock-on consequences uh, of the fact that freeing people from the demand to go and work um, suddenly improves society in multiple ways. So the Canadian one, I think, most clearly shows that. Um, and what's happened lately with the more sort of The more focused ones of Finland and Ontario and Canada actually had one as well. They're much more focused on their impacts on employment. So like if you give people a basic income, uh, do they continue to work or not? And for me, that just sort of misses the whole point of it. It's a, it's a change for uh, the entirety of society and not just simply about a labor market policy. The entirety of society. So it's a moral issue as well. Yeah, I think work is absolutely central to all of our existing societies right now. It's um, a key means through uh, to, for the creation of identity, a key means for socializing, a key means, well, the sole means for most people uh, of making an income. Work is absolutely central to our existing societies, and I think that's to our detriment. Uh, you've written that uh, basic income um, should complement social security or a social state and not uh, supplant it. Does it mean that countries that do not have uh, the main um, structure of uh, social security, like, for example, the United States, are farther from basic income than the other countries that have universal health care, for example? I'm not sure it can necessarily be a sort of linear process of first get social security and then get a basic income. I think it can go the other way as well. But my key sort of point there is, 
to avoid the Milton Friedman type argument where um, he was in favor of a basic income simply because it would allow um, the cutting of public provision of, of services um, and instead replacing it with this universal market. Um, so that's the key thing to ward off. And I think, you know, we'll see what happens with the Democratic primaries and with the presidential election. We'll see whether or not Bernie Sanders manages to implement something like Medicare for all and actually bring America up to the standards of uh, the rest of the developed world. I think they could also get a basic income and then still get Medicare for all as well. There's ways around this. It's interesting that you've mentioned that the critique uh, in the original book doesn't hold up today. Uh, but it's the critique part that I find quite realistic in a way, much more realistic than the society that could be possible under the implementation of uh, uh, the basic income in your version. I was wondering if my trouble with fleshing out the individual who is like part of this ideal society is my trouble alone, or are you also in a, in a bit of a kind of conundrum when you imagine a future citizen of a society like that. For example, you, you and Alex, you write that, uh, well, social networks can do a lot of good if used without greed or narcissism. But I kind of wonder if, if the main premise of social networks is exactly about greed and narcissism. So what, what kind of citizen can you imagine being, uh, you know, a part of this uh, future state with the basic income in your version? I would say it's not just a matter of the basic income, though. It's also a matter of the, you know, the automation of work, the reduction of work, the reduction of the working week and all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's a variety of things in place for people to be liberated from the constraints of wage labor. I think the the challenge here is that for most of the world, with the exception of, you know, Soviet and post-socialist states, wage labor has been the way of the world for centuries now. And we simply don't know what an alternative sort of subjectivity that isn't formulated in and through wage labor. We don't know what that sort of subject would look like. I have ideas about it, and I think fundamentally my sort of ontology of the human has something to do with excess beyond any particular constraint. Uh, so this is sort of an autonomous Marxist idea um, that the human isn't determined by finitude, but instead by an excess beyond any, any sort of boundary. So in that sense, I think there's always this excess beyond wage labor. And I think we can see expressions of that through, you know, at, at its purest, art and science and even laziness, I think is another key way. And sort of trying to imagine what the future subject might look like, we can look to those sorts of areas. It may not always be fit in with our sort of productivist mindset. It might just be going and playing video games all day. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong with that fundamentally. Uh, I, I think there's a real risk, for instance, in a future society that we we reimpose this idea of a social standard and demand of people a certain amount of productivity. Uh, and I think that that's the wrong way to go about it. I think we risk reasserting all the problems that we have under capitalism. So basically what you're saying is that an idea very dear to my heart, as I understand it, that people shouldn't be judged as, for example, talented according to the product that they kind of make. Yes. Mm -hmm. People can be talented, for example, in drinking beer and watching TV <laughs> only. And this is the unproductive uh, talent that could be absolutely legal under this basic income umbrella 
total universalist basic income umbrella. Is that is that correct? Broadly speaking, yeah. I mean, so the idea of full automation and the idea that we wouldn't have to do any work is impossible. Um, there will always be some residual work which can't be done by machines and which has to be equally distributed amongst the population. So you can imagine in a utopian society, we all have 10 hours or 15 hours a week of work to do. Uh, it might involve you know, care labor, it might involve all sorts of things which um, we simply can't get robots to do. I think you know we'll have to demand that people continue to do that just to maintain um, sort of a functioning society. But beyond that, people can be free to do whatever they want. If they want to become a champion uh, beer drinker, that's perfectly fine. I was having this very interesting conversation like 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, with a Swedish activist who was very interested in uneducation and anti-university frameworks of learning. Mm. She was telling me that the ideal end, uh, social end product of these um, initiatives, very feminist, very un anarchy-based politically, is a um, new biological being even. You're talking about subjectivity. That's a very interesting point. Maybe it's not about the social structure. Maybe it's the biological structure that has also to change. And she was saying that the, the ideal society of this uh, feminist and uh, equal and anarchist future is a lot like a um, colony of carrots in a way. The way of the carrot is the way of this future human that um, does growing and education and sharing the education mm-hmm. as a carrot, for example, shares the, you know, what, what it, what it uh, gets out of the earth with people. Yeah, so this gets into a part of the book, Inventing the Future, that most people um, didn't seem to pick up on, which is a sort of post-human aspects and the this idea. This is very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally entirely agree with that sort of aspect. I think, um, you know, in this sort of imagined future society, we would be free to experiment, not just socially, but also biologically. So this could be, you know, taking psychedelic drugs and exploring, you know, different states of consciousness. Uh, it can mean sort of cyborg augmentations. It can mean biohacking and all sorts of different uh, attempts to experiment with our basic biology. Any sort of future society would foster and enable and not judge those sorts of experiments in any any significant way. So why do you think the mutant futures that are usually depicted in uh, anti-utopian movies and books, why are they so grim, even given that uh, biological experimentation is kind of legal? Well, in most of those cases, I would say capitalism still exists. Um, so you've imagined an entirely different future, but the basic social parameters still um, operate according to the logic of capital accumulation. Uh, so in that sense, you know, inequality still emerges, there's still a ruling class, there's still exploitation, there's still all those basic fundamental elements of, of the capitalist structure. That being said as well, I think dystopias are a good reminder that our utopian imaginary should also be, shouldn't be perfect. Um, I think there's a real problem with utopias that try and imagine a perfect world. And the best sort of utopias ostensibly give a sort of perfect society, but they're also riven by conflicts and disagreements and all sorts of struggles. And I think that's the reality of the world is that we're never going to reach a sort of perfect state. Uh, there will always continue to be struggles and, 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 and different types of modes of exploitation. So that would, that would continue in any future society and we'd have to try and ward it off. I think getting beyond capitalism, though, 
would mean, first of all, a sort of liberation from material need. Um, everybody has their basic needs provided for, whether it be food, clothing, housing, care, whatever the case may be. Uh, and then also the freedom beyond wage labor. So rather than having to spend 40, 50 hours a week doing wage labor, uh, you're free to do whatever you would like to do. Now, of course, there'll be different modes of struggle and disagreement and antagonism that emerge from that. But it would ideally and hopefully, and I think, be a better world than what we have now. You mentioned Russian cosmos in a very positive context in the book. And you say that what uh, for many people felt like pure fantasy evolved into this program, basically, for the, the space exploration and space technologies. And you kind of draw, draw a parallel between the dreaming of uh, cosmos and the dreaming that you and Alex do in the Inventing the Future. When you think about the cosmic, the space exploration, you remember that the two superpowers basically did the bulk of the technology, mm -hmm. technological mm -hmm. advancement there. Two very different superpowers of that. So... For example, if basic income uh, would be a part of two superpowers policy, for example, in China, wired to social capital, and in uh, USA, uh, wired to the dismantle, dismantling, total dismantling of the social security, mm -hmm. would it be something catastrophic for the idea itself, like Stalinism was catastrophic for the um, original Marxist left ideas? Um, that sort of situation, the basic income would be, it would become uh, tied to those particular instantiations and um, be totally discredited, uh, which is partly why, again, I think the left needs to make a case for a leftist UBI. And it's sort of why, you know, I, I have sympathy with people on the left who don't like a basic income. Uh, I think there's a variety of good arguments against it. But to me, the alternative of saying, well, we don't want a UBI and we don't want to enter into the debates around it. I think the alternative is completely ceding the ground to um, the Silicon Valley approach or, you know, the sort of Chinese social capital approach and things. Uh, the debate needs to be had. The debate needs to be fought. And the, the sort of variety of basic incomes on offer needs to also be um, put forth. I would say there's, there's similar issues with any other sort of major government policy. So healthcare is a really good example. If healthcare was simply, you know, the sort of original German instantiation from, from the uh, Bismarck era of like, well, we're going to do this in order to ward off the revolutionary energies of socialism. Uh, that's one idea of healthcare. Uh, you've got then the American idea of healthcare, this massively privatized, wildly expensive system. Um, and if that was the only two ideas of healthcare that we had, it might be sort of discredited that healthcare should be provided through the state. Fortunately, you know, we have other alternatives, things like the NHS, um, which provide in some ways, an inkling of what a communist future might look like, you know, free access to healthcare for everybody, no questions asked. That's where basic income also has to be sort of fought. It has to be remind people that there are alternatives and that there, there isn't this one sort of narrow image of that policy. And where do you stand on um, the question of overpopulation or the overpopulated <laughs> earth. It's, it's not a problem in any way. You don't figure it into, no. into your calculations. No. To see nothing that, Malthusian about the basic no, income project. No, not in any way. The problem for the world population in general 
if you look beyond, say, the next 10 years, is actually that population is going to be decreasing. Uh, we're reaching a turning point where people are having fewer and fewer um, children. Uh, most European countries, most North American, Western countries in general, aren't reaching the replacement rate. So they aren't having enough children to replace the people that are dying. So most of the world is quickly following in that path. Uh, and actually, the predictions from the UN population body uh, are that actually population will, I think, peak at around 10 or 11 billion, and then it'll go down from there. I think that Philip Mirowski in his books has perfectly showed how neoliberal techno-capitalism uses the base theorem to, you know, feed off irrational judgments and, you know, possibilities. And calculated possibilities. What is the math behind uh, behind basic income? What is what the, you have this beautiful passage in the book whereby you say the left need to learn how to calculate basically calculus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I don't think there's anything particularly fancy about it. I think I mean I take a lot of Murawski's work to be an indictment of economics as a theory rather than an indictment of mathematics per se or physics. Um, and a lot of it is showing how there's a sort of almost physics envy uh, from the economic sector. And, you know, there's there's a sort of alternative ways of approaching economics as, a, as an approach. I think mainstream economics and neoclassical economics, particularly sort of New Keynesian foundations, they are based upon highly abstract models. And then they end up getting stuck at those abstract models and and they can show a sort of relationship between an abstract model and one particular phenomenon. But then when they want to go and explain another phenomenon, they have to go and create an entire new model. And it's a really poor use of mathematics here. And I think that, you know, when you talk to mathematicians or physicists or anything like that, they're often astounded by how simple the mathematics is that, that economists are using. Um, and it's not, it's not, you know, simple mathematics. It's quite complicated in many ways, but it is, it's not sort of kept up with advances in mathematics and as a fundamentally flawed sort of epistemology and approach to um, the way in which knowledge is constructed within that um, within that discipline. So I don't think the issue here is, the, is a question necessarily of mathematics, but of how are you conceiving of the use of mathematics instead? So uh, after work is basically after death, is it? <laughs> uh, it depends on how you define work. So how do you define work? I define work as wage labor, and wage labor is a social system which only exists under capitalism. Uh, it didn't exist before and it won't exist after capitalism. Wage labor as in um, what you're doing what you're doing at Strelka, for example, is this is not wage labor. This is something that is you're invited and you get paid a yeah. certain So I know I would count it as wage labor. Um, so it's also wage labor. Yes, If you're invited yeah. as a guest speaker somewhere, it's also wage labor. Well, okay. so it, it depends on the nature of the production process. And the production process can be something when, like manufacturing, very physically based, or it can be something which is much more um, cognitive and mental based. And, you know, preparation for doing a talk involves a lot of long hours, writing, researching, and doing mental labor. Uh, and I think the payment that you might receive is payment for that sort of labor. Now, the key sort of question here is, is this organized as something which is trying to generate 
profits, simply speaking. And Strelka is an institution which has to make money in order to survive in the capitalist system. And so therefore, it is partaking in all of that sort of capitalist work. Um, and therefore, it is, I would say, wage labor. So after wage labor comes in this marketplace, whether you were white collar or blue collar, you sell a set of skills, basically. Uh, you're not selling anything um, under basic income, but some of us do because some of us cannot be replaced by robots. So the ones who are not replaced by robots, do they get a sense of extra entitlement for the, maybe for the first time in their lives? Or uh, do you think that this sense of entitlement can also be managed into something uh, neutral or productive or progressive? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I don't have an easy answer to it. I think there's a variety of ways we could imagine organizing it. Um, one might be the equal distribution of all the work that remains. And UBI might be considered a sort of um, a remuneration for um, that minimal amount of labor that needs to be done. Uh, the alternative might be that, say, 80% of the population doesn't have to do any work and 20% does have to do some work. Uh, and they therefore get remunerated for, the tw uh, for the, whatever work they have to do. I would probably lean more towards the equal distribution of work. I think we're trying to get rid of these particularly inequalities of free time, um, which is one thing that under capitalism is is, is wildly um, disparate between the rich and the poor. Um, the rich can simply afford to pay people to do the services that they need, uh, whereas the poor have to carry out all the unpaid labor themselves. find out more about the terraforming faculty, curriculum, and research, go to our official website, theterraforming.strelka.com, apply to Strelka by November 10th, and subscribe on Facebook and Instagram to stay tuned. <laughs>